Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, let's just get right down to it. Uh, Mark Weingarten is the author of The Gang That Wouldn't Write Straight and Station to Station and musically inclined, plays drums and sings in the band California Wildebeest, which I'm sure you're all huge fans of. By the laughter, I can tell. Um, Tyson Cornell is the founder of Rare Bird Lit, a New York and LA marketing and publicity firm. He's also a musician who's toured the world and made it as many bands before him and certainly after him, big in Japan. Right? Uh, John Alpert, uh, co-founder of the legendary band Christian Death, uh, as well as drummer for Bad Religion, and his music journalism has appeared in LA Times, LA Weekly, Fader, and Black Book, just to name a few. Uh, Margaret Wappler uh, is a deputy editor at Dame Magazine. She's been published in Rolling Stone, Jane, Nylon, and LA Times, and her fiction has appeared in Black Clock, Facsimile, Public Fiction, and recently anthologized in Joyland Retro. And last but not least, Matthew Spector is the author of American Dream Machine and That Summertime Sound. His writing has appeared in Tin House, The Believer, and The Paris Review, magazines you may have heard of, and is the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. So without further ado, I'm handing this over to Mark Tyson, somebody, somebody. All right, do I just, here we go. Absolutely. All right. Excuse me, John. Is that all right? Well, thank you so much, Skylight, everybody here. Uh, this is really, in a lot of ways, a home away from home. I've been uh, working side by side as a competitor and a companion to a lot of these people for a long time. And um, um, with that, the progressive rock genre has been um, um, a, a, a part of me that um, have been very vocal about. Tosh knows this from many years working together. Um, but uh, there has always been um, a little bit of a hush when you mention any of these bands. You know, there are people that start walking out of the room because they don't want to hear your long diatribe on Tarkas. And so when Mark and I... I don't want to hear your long diatribe on Tarkas. <laughs> When Mark and I um, 
you know, we met a long time ago when he was uh, working on uh, the gang that wouldn't write straight. And um, we discovered that we had a, a, a common bond on this type of music, and that led to um, exploring other possibilities of, of what we do in the book world. So when we started to reach out to other authors that could potentially write pieces for what became this book, yes is the answer, um, we felt like it, it ignited something in a lot of people. Um, and uh, they had been waiting 20, 30 years to really voice these enthusiasms for the stories, the music, and most importantly, the human experience that went along with it. What you're going to find in this book, that you're not going to find in a lot of music journalism, is that human thread. Margaret's piece is a great example of that. Uh, my wife hates progressive rock music. She married the wrong person. Um, but we wanted to... Uh, put together a book that even the Prague haters could appreciate. And uh, I feel like we accomplished that thanks to a lot of these people up here. So I think um, what we probably want to do is um, um, have some of these contributors read a few uh, pieces from this and we can open, up, open it up to a, a discussion and see where it goes from there. So maybe John, do you want to kick it off? Okay. Sitting here. Um, it's going to be hard to read holding this. Yeah, so. yeah. What would John Anderson do? He'd have a cord in <laughs> around his head. evening is I'm it's the first time I'm gonna actually wear my reading glasses in public um, but I got I, I, I moved up from the sort of the grandfatherly ones to like some more stylish ones um, one of the things I'll say just in before I read is that um, in in the piece that that I wrote it's very it's sort of very personal but um, what I wanted to do was to sort of um, talk about like when I was growing up you know we would have said we hated prog rock but and, and and as hopefully as illustrated in the piece that is that that music influenced what we were listening to whether we liked it or not or, or even acknowledged it or not especially a band like King Crimson who influenced a lot of the sort of music like David Bowie who we were listening to um, and so um, it had an effect and um, Anyways, I'm just going to get into this. Okay. If the progressive rock band King Crimson conveyed a sense of epic grandeur and complexity, on that November morning in 1981, my friend Dwight and I were at the opposite end of the universe. We were both 16 years old, standing in a fenced patch of cracked dirt and tumbleweeds in the backyard of his mom's home on the edge of the Southern California desert. He was tall and black, and I was white and blonde. The sun was burning bright, and we were wearing tattered thrift store suits. The neighborhood was a cheap approximation of the suburban dream, a cheaply constructed stucco slum for the working poor fleeing nearby Los Angeles. 
An area towards the back was unofficially designated for blacks, and so that's where Dwight and his single mother Rosa were living. It was also where I was temporarily staying, having run away from my parents' tree-shaded and book-filled home. Like so many restless middle-class teenagers, I had rejected a world of comfort for hard drugs and a thrilling sense of downward mobility. Dwight and I had met our first year of high school, bonding over punk music, drugs, and vandalism. Neither Dwight nor I were fans of King Crimson nor any other progressive rock bands. When punk came along, my pot-smoking skateboarding friends and I like a cadre of rock Maoists had obliterated the past in order to rewrite our musical landscape. Taking a cue from Sex Pistol Johnny Rotten, who had marched through London in a homemade I Hate Pink Floyd shirt, we rejected previously cherished bands like Led Zeppelin as irrelevant dinosaurs, while prog rock practitioners like Yes became objects of outright derision. We Yet we continued to revere David Bowie. While his signature glitter rock albums predated and had influenced punk, his subsequent Berlin-era records, Low, Heroes, and Lodger, helped usher in the post-punk movement that more perfectly mirrored our personal descents into teenage nihilism. This was relevant because Fripp and Adrian Ballou, another guitarist, and I had mentioned them, I'm skipping around, uh, played, had played in Bowie's album, Lodger, and Ballou, another guitarist, played in Bowie's album Lodger, and while Bowie's band during the stage tour of 1978 were scheduled to perform that November night in 1981 with a reformed version of King Crimson, Dwight and I planned to go. The closest I'd come to seeing a prog rock show before that had been when a bunch of my prepubescent friends had stolen some wine and gone to see a screening of the Yes concert, Yes Songs. Yes concert film, Yes Songs. After, after consuming a bottle, of con a bottle concealed in my jacket, I had loudly addressed the theater full of hippies, accusing the band's cape-adorned keyboard player, Rick Wakeman, of being a warlock. <laughs> Why I thought that was news to anyone can only be attributed to the pilfered Zinfandel. After another outburst regarding Yes singer John Anderson being a eunuch, we were thrown out as the surrounding long hairs applauded. But at the advanced age of 16, we were doing everything possible to distance ourselves from any such youthful exuberance. For, more inexplicable, for some inexplicable reason, we wanted desperately to be old and jaded. Instead of skateboarding, we had started injecting heroin, dressing like middle-aged criminals from some non-existent European city. That night, as we drove in his mom's Chevy Camaro, Dwight slipped a cassette of Brian Eno's album, Here Come the Warm Jets. A mix of theatrical glitter rock and dissonant futurism merged perfectly with the scenes outside as the desert turned to suburbia and the lights and chaos of Hollywood. Back then, the intersection of Hollywood and Western was a bustling outdoor market of drugs and prostitution. We slowed to survey the scene. The song playing was Babies on Fire, a tension-filled track where Eno sings in a mocking sneer accompanied by a beautifully good violent guitar solo from Robert Fripp. That's my dad, Dwight said, looking out the window. I spotted a tall, 40-something African-American man standing on the corner wearing a captain's hat. Are you serious, I asked? Yeah. Years later, I would find out that Dwight's mom had lived in constant fear that her son would someday reconnect with his career criminal father, anticipating the pull his presence might have on her gifted but troubled son. We parked and walked to where his dad was standing. The two greeted one another. So what are you young men doing out here in Hollywood, his father asked. We're going to Pasadena to see. We're going to Pasadena to see a band. We were looking to go downtown. Dwight answered, using an old term for heroin. There's none around here. His dad answered. 
maybe over on the east side I'll take a ride with you if you want, but I can't guarantee anything. You got anything else? Some loads, doors and fours. They're pills, right, Dia? Dwight asked, disappointed. Put your head in your chest, better than the strongest heroin. I'm skipping to the show. Dwight and I stood at the front of the stage and waited for both the band and the pills to take effect. The band arrived first. The house lights dimmed and four musicians strolled out looking like new wave college professors. They took their places and began the song Fripatronics. Accustomed to the bombast of hard rock and the aggression of punk, the complex math rock was foreign to me. While the rest of the audience appeared to marvel at the musicianship on display, Dwight and I were lost. It felt more like an academic presentation than a performance. But like the pills we had recently swallowed, the effect of King Crimson took a while to kick in. As the synthetic warmth of the drugs began to spread through our teenage bodies, the group launched into a song called Satori in Tangier. They were suddenly playing with a newfound urgency, drums and bass propelling the song with a ragged tension. After a minute or so, Robert Fripp let loose with a solo unlike anything I'd ever heard. It was a frantic and beautifully evocative wall of noise that conveyed both an otherworldly exoticism and profound sense of yearning over the band's energetic rhythms. I looked over and saw Dwight doing a herky-jerky, new wave-like dance, resembling one of the twisting suit and tie characters from the artist Robert Longo's Men in City series. I remember laughing and then closing my eyes. When I eventually woke up, Dwight was driving the car back into the desert as the sun rose. I remember thinking that he looked old in his suit, staring out at the road with heavy-lidded eyes. I faded out again, and when I regained consciousness, it was the afternoon, and I was in Dwight's mom's house. I wandered into the backyard, and he was sitting in a lawn chair holding a guitar. His six-year-old brother, Selena, was next to him, listening as his big brother played the David Bowie song, Heroes, singing the words in a raspy whisper. We can beat them forever and ever. We can be heroes just for one day. Dwight died a few years later. As his mother had feared, he returned to Hollywood and reconnected with his father. The two had lived with a roving band of thieves, dealers, and prostitutes in the motels around Hollywood while his dad schooled him in the criminal life. The afternoon of his death, Dwight was sharing a jail cell with his dad. Both of them were facing separate life sentences for separate drug-related murders. At 21 years old, Dwight had taken a rope he had constructed out of bedsheets and climbed out an 11-story window. He lost his grip and slipped away. Decades after that, I was riding through Los Angeles in the back of a sleek Mercedes with a famous and very wealthy rock star I was interviewing. As we drove into the Hollywood Hills, he put on the King Crimson album in the court of the Crimson King. The epic music played loudly and I began to think about the band and then my old friend. In the silence between songs, the rock star had looked out at the lights below and asked if I had grown up in Los Angeles. I told him I had. So Crimson seems to be like the one prog band that a lot of non-prog fans like. And a lot of punk rockers have cited Red as being a seminal influence of the Wetton, the last Wetton Crimson record. So I mean, you touched on it a little bit in your piece. I'm just wondering like, what is it about Crimson? Like why, why did Crimson endear themselves to people who didn't necessarily like Yes or Genesis or all those other bands? 
I mean, one of the things I found out later on was that a lot of people I knew were listening to like traditional prog rock. Um, as I mentioned, I played for a brief glimpse in the band Bad Religion, and I remember driving to a, a show in Tahoe with a singer, Greg Graffin, and he, and it was kind of funny, but he drove and played nothing but prog rock the entire time. And that entire band, because they're still really good friends of mine, their whole sound is based on prog rock. Just nobody talked about it. They actually released a record called into the unknown, which they immediately like cleared out of every record store, but it's total. It's it's prog rock, and at the height of their punk, you know, sort of fame, they released a prog rock record, and people hated them for it. So I think a lot of people didn't talk about it, but it crept in, and for whatever reason, King Crimson was cool. Um, I don't. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's their association with sort of you know the Bowie stuff and and that world more, you know. And, and they didn't sort of talk well, about. It's more, it's, it's more aggro. Right. It's more angular. It's and it's longer. less. There's not a lot of imagery of druids and castles and right, which is unfortunate. It's not you know. Pretty, it's not pretty either. Right. Right. So I think that's it. It's more serious and more art. Um, but I. You know. I actually. I don't. I mean, I listened to Yes, and, and I was just yes, listening to Yes on a friend's great stereo, because he was testing out a stereo, and it sounds amazing. So, um, and, and a lot of the old punk music sounds totally like ridiculous and stupid, unless you're 15 years old and drunk and angry, you're so. Death? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of it sounds very dated, but prog rock, you know, I guess because it's, it's written to be ancient it's it feels fine in any era you know it's the love that dare not speak its name exactly right? it's like a lot of these bands actually did sort of harbor a sort of love for this music but they would right they would be loath to admit that they actually and I, I think one of the things that is that for me like a, a lot of what people think of as prog rock is like the stuff that became popular which was awful like you know i don't think it, kansas and stuff like that you know, those are the, that's like, you can, can't judge any, that's right, it's like saying Blink-182 is like hardcore punk, so, you know, so, but uh, I don't know, I mean. What about the, um, I mean, do you think uh, the King Crimson is much darker yeah. than, I mean, um, Margaret wrote about a little, a little bit about King Crimson, which inspired her personal uh, story. You have a great yes piece, good retrospective. But King Crimson and Genesis's uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is probably the darkest of the Genesis stuff, is really kind of like it's the flagship of this book. Everybody kind of kept coming back to that. Um, and um, I mean, do you think that is something that let bands like Tool and all those other bands that came later that were really inspired by that hold on to a little bit of well, purity? A lot of, a lot of metal bands yeah. love that stuff, too. And, and also, I mean, I know there's a lot of bands, like contemporary bands, that have listened to that stuff and, and, and have been very influenced by it. I don't know. I mean, I think within any genre, there's, there's really great bands and there's really awful bands. and. Um, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of prog rock that I can't relate to, and then there's some that I really think is great. I mean, and I have to say, I went in this, probably like two years after that story, I went to see Robert Fripp play at a club called Madame Wong's, where he did the Frippertronics, where he, I think he actually lectured and then played guitar. And 
I, you know, it's great. It's great to say, but it was incredibly boring. You know, and but in in the context of a band, like his music, like his guitar playing was great. And and you know, Adrian Ballou was just going to go on tour with Nine Inch Nails and left. We were just talking about that before. Um, so you can see the connection. I mean, they probably sought him out. You know, because of his ties to all of that. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. Margaret, do you want to? Sure, I'll go up there. Hello. Um, so when Mark first contacted me about being in this book, I wasn't totally sure I had a story to tell. Um, I've, you know, the music that I grew up with was much more like sort of steeped in the 90s with n like Sonic Youth and Pavement and those kind of bands. But then I you know, started to think back and this one particular chapter and my life came back and so I was really excited to have an opportunity to write about it. Um, so I'm going to read a few pages from the essay. Uh, in our Marlboro-clouded living room, my roommate Julie and I pinched locks of our oily hair between our fingers and pulled them out in front of our faces for inspection. We were waging the latest battle in our ongoing war of who was the grungier bohemian girl. Seven days, she said. Five, I answered back. I always lost. Julie had thick, curly brown hair that could withstand weeks of neglect. My fine brown hair, however, looked a shade darker within 48 hours of not washing. After a week, I always lost my resolve and found myself scrubbing my scalp vigorously with finesse. Somewhere in there, the former Margaret, the high school girl who had showered every day and carefully matched her gap pants with her limited express sweater, was screaming, what the fuck? Take a shower already. It was 1995, our first year in college, and Julie and I were in love with our own filth. The same obsession ruled our entire group of friends. Ratty flannels and army pants were our uniforms that signified we had loftier pursuits than scrubbing our bodies into pillars of lame normalcy. We were scumbag soldiers lockstepping with the grunge decor of the times. Julie and I were living in Chicago's Wicker Park, a neighborhood just warming to the idea that it could be a thriving hipster enclave instead of a dumpy collection of Polish dives. Our apartment, a yellow bricked fortress on Crystal Avenue, was crawling with roaches. One skimmed across my naked stomach once in the middle of the night, disappearing into the whirl of sheets. It never did reveal its hiding spot, even when I popped up and repeatedly shook out the blankets. Most of our decoration, if it could be called that, celebrated trash. For Christmas, Julie and I decorated our tree with playing cards, beer caps, and cigarette butts. Every piece of furniture we had was either an ancient hand-me-down or a product of our frequent dumpster dives. We laughed at the opulence of our street name when compared to our cruddy residence, which we'd sarcastically dubbed the Crystal Palace. Yep, a real mansion, all right if you could just ignore the stench of the mouse who once died in the pocket of Julie's leather jacket. The other unofficial occupant of the Crystal Palace was my boyfriend, Adam, still finishing his last year of high school. At a certain point, Julie got annoyed that he wasn't paying rent, so he started spending more time at his parents' house in the suburbs. As much as I love the feral quarters of my very first apartment, it was a relief to be somewhere clean and orderly. 
Adam's parents were New York City Jewish hippies who let us do whatever we wanted, who never knocked on his bedroom door unless they were offering cooked food. His mother kept the house so clean you'd put down your empty glass and within three minutes it'd be neatly stowed in the dishwasher, the counter wiped of condensation. I wasn't a total newbie to sex before Adam, but my other sporadic encounters were isolated and meaningless. Adam was different. We were building something. I'd first fallen for him when I saw him wearing jeans that he'd doctored by stapling stripes of electrical tape down the sides. He made pencil drawings of strange men in big hats and wore poems and wrote poems every day in a black hardbound sketchbook. When he lost it at one point, his mother helped him look for it. He had big brown eyes that sparkled playfully like some sort of madcap prank was always about to take place. He laughed by pushing air through his nose and then tittering loudly. Within a few months of him hanging around my particular band of misfits in high school, we were inseparable. We rooted through all sorts of music together, him introducing me to a few bands like the Dead Kennedys and Ministry. I remember hearing Sonic Youth's 100% with him, the serrated guitar sawing deep into our thrilled bones. The line, I stick a knife in my head, accurately thinking about your eyes, accurately captured our violently dizzy love. We made out for hours and hours in his bed, outfitted in black sheets. They were cotton, matte black, and probably from Sears, but I thought they were very cool and forbidden. Sometimes we'd have sex with lambskin condoms stolen from his parents' stash. Other times he'd come outside of me, maybe on my stomach. Despite his parents' open attitudes towards sex, Adam told me they taught him about masturbation when he was 13. In my family, I had to consult Judy Bloom for such information. We were still careful to cover up our noises in the bedroom. We played music constantly, some from our own CDs, but most of it was from his parents' record collection, with LP corners frayed and cover art worn down. His parents had good taste, but we also figured if we were going to blast anything, it had better be something they liked too. Somewhere in their stacks of Bob Dylan, Carole King, and David Bowie, we found King Crimson's first record, and the court of the Crimson King. We knew about the guitarist Robert Fripp, the only constant member through all the ver various permutations of King Crimson, through our love for Brian Eno. If Eno presented as some sort of hysterically gifted glam dandy on Here Come the Warm Jets, then Fripp was his mysterious shadow self. Lurking on a few of the album's tracks, Fripp's sound was distinctive, both exaggerated and subtle in its grand sense of focus and control. There was something simultaneously meditative and blistering about his playing. We were curious to know what a band anchored by this charismatic musician would sound like. The King Crimson record quickly became a staple of our makeout sessions, at first because it was loud and it was long. With all five of the multi-part songs clocking in at longer than seven minutes, there was no sound our teenage lust could muster that was capable of piercing the shrieking haze of King Crimson. The first song, 21st Century Schizoid Man, not notably sampled by Kanye West in 2010, starts with a molten blast of guitar and saxophone and forges ahead like some kind of possessed lawnmower, making endless zigzagging cuts for a labyrinthine maze. The over-the-top music easily intertwined with our excessive exploits. We wanted to get lost in our bodies, following every sensation till it blinkered out or yielded something blinding. The point was to feel continuously rapturous, to revel in a suspension of thought. 
On the surface, it might sound anti-conscious, but it was more like the best of both worlds. Sex with Adam was a cerebral activity blissfully cleared of any self-conscious tracking of my body. If I wasn't feeling active pleasure, then I hovered in a content state, and that's when my mind focused on the music, attaching temporarily to a crash of cymbals or the part in Moonchild that makes good on its hippie name with several minutes of freeform plunking around on the Mellotron. I still don't think of that album as songs, but as atmosphere that's visited by musical events that function like weather. The atmosphere receives electrical charges and reacts. Many of the songs, such as Epitaph, open at the moment when a brewing storm finally breaks into clattering rain. Fripp seemed to think something similar. He once famously said, King Crimson lives in different bodies at different times, and the particular form which the group takes changes. When music appears, which only King Crimson can play, then sooner or later King Crimson appears to play the music. The joy of excess is one of the hallmarks of prog rock, along with a kind of push and pull between the physical and the cerebral, which are often viewed, whether erroneously or not, as opposing forces in the music. On In the Court of the Crimson King, there's rarely a musical idea that can't be expounded on in at least a few different ways. Um, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Uh, while I was writing this essay, I kind of went back uh, to listen to the record and see what, what came up for me now. Um, while preparing for this essay, I went back to In the Court of the Kings Crimson King. I'd heard the occasional song over the years, but never the complete album in the way that Adam and I listened to it. Admittedly, I probably didn't revisit it in the right way. I didn't get high. I didn't lie down and try to have sex with anyone or myself. I listened on headphones, upright, at my computer, the sober afternoon sun lighting up cobwebs in a nearby window frame. Maybe I can blame too much time working as a professional music critic or the cold-eyed logic of being older, but it just didn't move me in the same way. Whatever footpath I had once taken into the music as an adolescent, using it to underscore sexual discovery and intellectual tomfoolery, seemed closed to me now. If my fiancé put this on tonight as mood music for the boudoir, I would laugh and be instantly paralyzed. What am I, a background handmaiden in a Hieronymus Bosch painting? Am I supposed to slither on the ground with a vine around my neck? Okay, that's it. Thank you. So, um... So it's Fripp again. Hmm? It's Fripp again. Mm -hmm. And you sort of touched on your piece. I mean, it's more about, it's his sonics. It's the atmosphere that it creates. It's less about, I guess maybe that's why punks liked him. It wasn't about, I mean, he was great technically, but it wasn't really about that. Yeah. It was about that, those screaming shards of noise that he would create with that guitar, right? I mean, it was really... I mean, it was, it was like a mood that could be sustained in those songs that I think really appeals to I, the teenage mind, for one thing, where it's like you really just like get to sink down into it and all your dramatic thoughts are reinforced. And I don't know. I, I, yeah, I loved it at the time. At the time. You know, Margaret has become disenchanted with King Crimson. <laughs> You still have a soft spot for it. Yeah. Uh, do you think being a, a critic mm -hmm. and somebody who um, um, stays in touch with what's happening in music, are there 
Are there new bands that fill that same kind of void that that King Crimson was filling, or some of those prog bands? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's touches of it all over in the landscape, you know? I feel like some of the things that Radiohead has done, for instance, with like certain kind of like deep sonics and deep sustaining of a kind of mood play into it. Uh, so I feel like there's kind of like fingerprints in a lot of different bands, but I wouldn't say that it's totally sustained in any, but any one particular act. What's well, that sense of... It's that sense of sweep that Radiohead has. Yes. It's a sense of like ambition and doing things that are sort of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that could, you know, we could say about Prague that's really like refreshing about it now. Because I feel like a lot of radio, it's like three minutes and you're out. And, you know, some of those songs are just absolutely epic and really large scale. And that's what's thrilling about it is that they, they went for that. It's like, right. why not? Why Even not? if they failed, they still yes, went for it. Exactly. Right, sure. Should we move to some yes? Okay. All right. Um, I wanted to uh, talk about someone less defensible than King Crimson, and I, I wish that I had had the, the chops to talk about ELP or, you know, something really... Um, kind of proggier yet, but uh, I went with yes, so we're probably just proggy enough. Um, this is this is not a long essay, but I uh, when I Mark emailed me today and said, you know, you should read for about five minutes, so I, I sort of um, did a kind of ad hoc thing where I just thought, I'm going to read this paragraph, and then this little passage, and then this, and I realized as I was sitting there that that's sort of the equivalent of like a radio edit of like a, you know, so you guys, there, there may be some sense of something missing, and you'll just have to imagine the sort of interminable soloing that's being left out. So much of life involves the covering up of one's tracks. The cigarette smoke you wave out the window, the stash you flush before the cops or your parents, because let's face it, I'm talking about teenage life here, the one developmental stage that never ends. Toss your room, the browser history you clear because uh, you don't really like girl-on-girl -girl porn. Sometimes you hide not just from the authorities, but from yourself. Because some music, for example, was made to be played loud. Has anyone ever felt a pang over rattling the windows with Can't You Hear Me Knocking? Where other music, well, it might be built for volume, but you just can't do it without slouching in your seat and hoping, no, praying the neighbors aren't home. Yes. Good Lord, yes? Am I really playing a yes record? An older kid turned me on. That was how it happened back in the 70s. This kid, Paul, he was my neighbor and I hated him. He was a year older than me though and he had authority, not of coolness, even I knew that this redheaded geek who could barely skateboard his way out of a paper bag wasn't that, but of experience. He'd smoked pot before me, he abused me by calling me a virgin. Again, he was too, even I knew that, but at least he didn't have to scurry to a dictionary to find out what the word meant. He owned copies of Obscured by Clouds and Brain Salad Surgery. He was a regular sophisticate, in other words, while I was cutting my teeth on Aerosmith and Ted Nugent. I first discovered Fragile through him. Yeah, 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 roundabout. I know, blessing and curse, the one every true yes head has come to hate, because it's the only, song yet most, only yes song most people know. Dutifully, I lifted the needle after Cans and Brahms, which was a reliable minute and a half of what the fuck is this shit every time. I delved no further. Within a few years, I learned the reflective yes hatred 
triple album, My Ass. That's only cool when The Clash do it. Common to all but the most iconoclastic members of my generational subset. Where do I get off, then, claiming ownership of yes? What the fuck do I know? Only what the last few years of obsessive reclamation have taught me, and by obsessive reclamation, I mean reclamation of almost everything. Not just yes, but every piece of detritus stamped between my birth and 1980 or so I ever rejected. Because I rejected a lot of things. I rejected, essentially, myself. And all these years later, I can only hope to get back some ghost or dream of who I might have been and was. God damn, if put that way, the sentiment doesn't begin to resemble a, a yes lyric and its spatial and emotional cubism, but whatever. Yes are a time machine for me. They take me back to something that never quite existed. All the best and least defensible bands do. We're going to have to talk about John Anderson, though, even as it pains me to do it. The dude's voice was high. <laughs> and much of what attaches me to this band in terms of mockery can be traced back to the singer. And shit, the lyrics too, without either of which Yes might have been a more ignorable, but also a less risible force. Yesterday a morning came, a smile upon your face is the first line of yours is no disgrace. Caesar's palace, morning glory, silly human race. Whoops. That catastrophic clash between Caesar's palace and silly human race. How absurdly the adjective silly comes across when sung by a man whose balls sound like they're in a vise. Besides, make this scan like Shelley for 12-year-olds. On a sailing ship to nowhere, leaving any place, if the summer changed to winter, yours is no disgrace. Yep. I haven't the faintest idea what that means either, if it means anything at all. I don't require song lyrics to have meanings, and I sometimes think Iggy Pop is a better poet than Bob Dylan, but the obvious arch fay, yeah, it's both arch and fay, straining after meaning, that symbolically freighted Caesar's palace that crops up even before we get to mutilated armies whose morals disappear later in the song, to say nothing of a purple wolfhound and a bunch of other stuff. All this marks Anderson as a truly terrible lyricist, and one doesn't have to dig too much further into the catalog. In and around the lake, mountains come out of the sky and they stand there, say, to cite the man's best known hook as a locus of prepositional geographic and kinetic confusion. <laughs> a hectic slaw of an image that busily manages to convey almost nothing sensical at all to find other examples. Yeah, he's abysmal. He's also, I'm just going to say it, awesome. <laughs> I could note that aspects of their later work seem to echo things that are at least reasonably cool. The guitar melody that kicks off long distance runaround sounds to me a lot like Jerry Garcia. Or prefigure things that are indisputably so. The next section of that song would be perfectly at home on Remain in Light. Or even things that will be so. The very song was covered by Red House painters once everybody else figures them out. But no. Let me instead submit that this is the very meaning of being alive, that we fit imperfectly with our surroundings and express ourselves mostly in the most lurching ways, silly human race. I won't argue that to love yes is to love humanity, simply because that sort of grandiose overstatement seems a little prog in itself. And, by this, by, and besides, I don't know enough about any of it. Not the band, not the records, and not even humanity. I'll limit myself instead, limit myself even further, to saying yes make me feel good, except when they annoy me, which they still do. The clap may be a virtuoso guitar performance, but I hear it as ragtime interpreted by a hyperactive Ren Fair attendee. They make me feel so good, though. 
They make me feel like the world is opening up before me, like I'm lying on my back in my childhood bedroom, staring up at the sun, glazing the palm fronds outside my window, like I'm a little bit high, though maybe that's just a trick of the light, and maybe I'm apprehending something, signaled by those incredibly detailed Roger Dean sleeves, one part Goya, one part Silmarillion, I guess, that I'm still not quite getting. I might, though. I could. If I listen a little harder, and if I can get over my own embarrassment, I'm not embarrassed by the band at this point. It's my own essential frailty and lameness that attacks me. If I can get over myself, and if I grow up, I can follow this music as far as it'll go, close to the edge and beyond, to the world that exists until it doesn't, and your longing is the only thing that remains. Oh, it just makes me giggle every time I hear stuff like that. But you touch on something that's really interesting that we see a lot in this book just kind of crop up because this stuff is so polarizing. When we were uh, doing a reading at another bookstore um, uh, last week, um, we almost got into a, a pretty heavy argument with uh, this really tall guy in, in the back in a gentle giant t-shirt that was probably purchased at a show and uh, he was really I mean I think we'd get along with him really well if we sat down and talked but he was really opinionated about prog versus punk versus other things and what I like about Matthew's piece and uh, Rick Moody's piece in here as well they start out um, just bashing the band and telling you everything that um, that um, is obvious and everything that people uh, really feel and express about this stuff, and then you come full circle and um, you, you 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 couldn't endorse them anymore. Yeah. And um, you know, was that really? I mean, does that come from a, a true true place of? Personal emotion. I would actually say not not even necessarily a place about yes. It just has to do with um, you know taste. After a while, one's own taste, one's own sensibility becomes kind of oppressive. Um, I mean, you know, you know. I feel like the older I get, the more I want, I try to chase things that I, I'm pretty confident, either I'm not confident at all that I do like, or even things that I know that I don't like, because I want to be wrong. Um, it's really, really satisfying to like find something that I had dismissed out of hand and discover that it's amazing. Um, I like being wrong, and you know the the um, you know and and I don't like um, standing on taste as a way of you know somehow you know holding yourself apart from other people. I find that sort of a very flimsy excuse. Uh, you know, a any kind of taste, whatever it is, literary taste, cinematic taste. Like you know, we all have our kind. I mean. We all lean on these things consciously or otherwise, and I, I like to try to erode that in myself where I can. Which begs the question, if you haven't, if this music isn't rooted in your childhood, yeah. if prog rock isn't something that was a rite of passage for you as a young person, white male, can you learn to, I mean, like it late I mean I don't you know I don't know because I was so immersed in this stuff I think I did I mean I think the essay really is I mean I do like yes quite a bit and that's you know and I and I didn't other than you know the one so I was just I pushed it away and pushed it away pushed it away I like it a lot but I didn't learn to like it until maybe you know five six years ago I didn't revisit it ever should we open it up anybody have any questions
Or have we covered everything that you need to know? <laughs> Tosh. Never too late to learn to love something One of the hand, one of the few prog musicians with open ears and sort of Catholic tastes and ability to sort of reach out beyond the genre and sort of explore other things, which is why I think prog rockers and uh, you know there's a commonality with Fripp because he's did some wonderful stuff in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's ugly sounding. Yeah. Peter Gabriel's the same way in a lot of ways. So one great thing that I learned with uh, Tom Juneau's piece on the Peter Gabriel solo records in here was that, um, you know, I mean, f uh, Gabriel ended up leaving Genesis because, in a lot of ways, what he got too weird, and that conflicted with the rest of the band. And so what he did was, is he went solo, and cut his hair and became the most normal looking guy on the face of the planet. The opposite of that. Um, the first tour in the US, television opened up. And so you have this more punk rock uh, audience type band on stage with a, uh, prog, uh, a, a prog audience watching. And um, they were, from what I hear, booed, booed off the stage many nights and I I think it was three shows in where Peter Gabriel um, ended up putting together a punk rock version of Whiter Shade of Pale and started opening up shows and this I think Fripp was playing with it was Levin and Fripp and um, and they were getting booed until they started playing um, Gabriel and and Genesis stuff and there's an interview with him before a rock Palace show, and they say, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why are you alienating your audience? He said, I just think it's funny. That's my humor. <laughs> and uh, and thinking about that, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, that I mean, that's a lot more punk rock than a lot of the punk rock acts that are going on out there. And um, when I tell people that, I think it, it it ends up, or when Tom mentions that, it opens up a lot of different uh, ears to this type of stuff. And the irony being that television is kind of proggy. And television, television is kind of proggy. Television play, Marky Moo was seven or eight minutes long. And it was a big guitar jam. It was like, had different parts to it. It's like, mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly the damned that opened mm -hmm. for Gabriel. Exactly. Any other questions? Charles? Uh, I don't know if I actually have a question. I wanted to point out, like, uh, I think what you guys were talking about earlier about Fripp. I think that the, you were saying right, it, there's no runes, no references to runes in his music was a major thing. But the work that he did in, in the, beyond, uh, the, beyond the first album, when in the early 70s they started investing in uh, ridiculous, dismal power chords, was I think the thing that became the big influence on, on uh, people like uh, Greg from. Uh, Black flag, right? Like really heavy, heavy, ugly power chords. Are you talking about Lark's Tongues 2 and Red? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the stuff I think that, that really informed it because it didn't have any particular uh, connection to mythology like most Rock did. And it was definitely like these super heavy, ugly chords. And I think that's what why there was a, a later connection to why he still stands when everybody else is kind of embarrassing. 
the other thing I wanted to point out is like, if you write a sequel to this, I have a great story about <laughs> ha Pitch. having sex on acid with my first great love to this climax of the Supper's Race song by Genesis, right? Which I, I so wish that I, after listening to her read her essay, I'm like, oh my god, that is exactly what happened to me. <laughs> right? Anyway, that's all I have to say. Well, there are many other stories to tell, and um, when the galleys went out for this, uh, there were a number of people, writers, uh, that um, that we know well that came out and said, why didn't you, you know, why didn't <laughs> I didn't know you were doing this. So I, who knows what's going to happen. We enjoyed doing this. Uh, Mark and I went into this project thinking nobody's going to give a shit about anything uh, in this area. And um, surprisingly, people are into it. So we're very thankful for that. And we'll see where it goes. But uh, unless anybody has any other questions, um, love to hang out and mingle with you guys. And in the back. Uh, that I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know if it comes uh, really comes up in the book, book, urban versus suburban. I think a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, starts in Europe, where urban suburban isn't as prominent. I don't think as in the states. But uh, no, that's interesting. Well, a lot of this prog stuff became a staple of classic rock radio, which is sort of very suburban sort of format that a lot of suburban kids. Well, just classic rock stuff. So, like, Yes was like, I mean, that was on the radio all the time. And it was sort of, you know, Yes, Aerosmith, Fleetwood Mac. That was kind of the rotation in those days. Some of the essays, like, have music coming on when people are driving, like Joe Mina's essay. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's, yeah, so much yeah. of, like, teenagers driving around. The it's suburbs. the soundtrack of yeah. their lives, yeah. Sure. Bruce? I just want to say, if you were a kid actually in high school in the first half of the 70s, as I was, uh, Bob Rock, Purpose Zap, Dada Rock, that was underground rock. Right. That was the underground rock. Right. Rock hadn't happened. If you were not listening to Top 40 and most people played the prom, for example, that's what you listened to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to forget. It's easy to forget that it was underground at one time. So a lot of guys I knew that ended up in punk bands in the early 80s, that's what we had all listened to because mm -hmm. we wanted to be weird and different. And then when by the time punk rock came around, prog rock had already pretty much proved out. Right, right. It deserved to die by that point. <laughs> I mean, it was horrific that it really died. Um, so I kind of want to like, direct this to each of you guys. Um, but uh, let's just say hypothetically that you've been asked by some sort of rock deity to put together a Mount Rushmore of prog <laughs> rock albums. Uh, no particular order, but it can only be four. Uh, what would they be? Wait, albums? We talked about it. We've had very long discussions <laughs> about this. Okay, bands, bands. Uh, I was thinking albums. Albums. Yeah, I think albums. Tyson would agree that Red, King Crimson's Red would go on that, right? Right? Yeah, I would, I, that, I would have to say Red would be one. I mean, which Yes record would it be? Would it be, close would it be the Close to the Edge. Yeah. I mean, if it were. I, I'm not going to argue with that. No, it's yeah. fantastic. Uh, well, 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 the, the, just the Yes album is so odd. I mean, Wait a minute, it has to be five records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fine. The Lamb. Don't say Green Slade, and don't say... <laughs> now, I saw Gentle Giant 30 some odd years ago. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. They'd come out, and they had like a conventional lineup, and they'd play conventionally. <laughs> And if you were on drugs, this was a real mind blower. Then they'd all play guitar together. 
<laughs> then they'd all be on drums together. <laughs> then they'd all pick, it was like the craziest, like, which I don't know, it was probably kind of risible because it was sort of like they were showing off in a way, but you know, when you're 14, it, it's a fairly mind-blowing thing. That guy at Book Soup would definitely agree with me that it was a great show. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, uh, we have two. That's a good question. Was, we have two. Yeah, it was really hard Not to find them. No, 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 oh, in Prague? In oh, there's like. In, well, it's, it's a metaphor for that. Yeah. Well, I, it's the most sexless genre. Uh, it's like the most, the least sexy, like. Because it doesn't address like real human feelings, and it's not really about that. It's, it's you know, it's about the Hobbit and things that, it's about things that teenage boys are attracted to, you know. Yeah, it's time for a neo-prog movement to come along. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I don't think any of us have an answer to that, uh, but we have been thinking about it for a long time. <laughs> Uh, it's really, it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's totally bizarre. I mean, in uh, Joe Mino's piece, really hilarious piece on Rush, he talks about sex, sex, sexual energy, sexuality, sensuality being this centerpiece of rock music and, you know, this kind of, this, this transference of energy that Brett Michaels would talk about beautifully right now. Um, and, uh, the next line is, how did Rush uh, miss this entire point? <laughs> There's, I mean, there really isn't, uh, except for maybe some Greg Lake lyrics, there really isn't anything that uh, references, women. not saying women, uh, yeah, referencing women, or anything that um, has to do with, um, you know, any kind of real human interaction. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, uh, it's island music, you know? It's pretty bizarre. I don't know the answer to that, man, but it's, uh, we've been thinking about it, and uh, I don't know if... Yeah. I mean, I think the whole, like, classic rock in general just isn't that hospitable to women. There's not that many figures in the whole landscape at that point. And I, I mean, that's actually, I think, something that, like, 70s, like, disco and punk and then pop in the 80s, like, was way more galvanizing and exciting for women in that sense because you could you could see yourself on the stage whereas I feel like you know we actually had this discussion a little bit on uh, soundcheck uh, the radio um, show in New York and uh, you know there there's just barely any figures there's a woman in Renaissance but you know when you think about the the really bigger acts yes and ELP and all of those just like completely devoid and I do feel like you know when you're a woman you you want to see yourself in it you want to feel yourself in it and so you're not as um, I, I'm not as attracted to the music because I don't see myself you know so the, no the appeal of Prague was the opposite of something like punk where punk was sort of like oh I could do that or I relate to I could Whereas Prague was sort of like, they were like gods to us. Yeah. They were superheroes with like supernatural powers of keyboard <laughs> technique. <laughs> so it was sort of like they were, they were, they were on this pedestal. They wanted to be because they wore capes and they had, you know what I mean? All the imagery lended itself to this kind of hero worship. Mm -hmm. 
No, but he's sort of the er text of <laughs> of prog. I'm wondering, did the prog rock bands know they were prog rock bands? Like, was there like was there a movement where they all acknowledged like that they were part of yeah, something? I think it was a community just like, you know, Boston Hardcore or LA Punk Rock, CBGB's in the late 70s. I think, I think Prog Rock was its own community and that's how they defined it. That's it. I can't imagine going to Prog Rock. Medium. Some castle. A lot of kids. Conservatory. Exactly. Yeah, one, one thing that I want to uh, uh, acknowledge, I was meaning to, to acknowledge last week, was there's a beautiful blog post. It was a response to a review that came out about this book where this guy says that, um, you know, the review was terrible, even though it was like a puff piece. Um, that how, could, um, how, how could they have assigned him to review the book and whatnot? And I don't know what's so silly about a keyboard solo, but whatever. And... Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, maybe those are the kinds of people that would show up to that meeting. Absolutely, that's in the book. Um, that Loosely defined as Prague, I would you know. Because that was very really to me. Like Soft Machine and... Soft Machine is pretty Prague, right? Later, Soft yeah. Machine is totally Prague. It's Fusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we draw a line between uh, Prague and jazz fusion. So, but anyway, thank you guys so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.